Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Outer Blues Podcast. Great to have you back. As always, Simon Alicia here, and I am traveling. So the usual caveats of the uh, hotel recording quality. Uh, I'm going to try and um, bash the audio into shape post-production, but uh, we'll see how we go. So I do appreciate your patience with that. So lots and lots of launches have been happening. In fact, um, we're pretty much averaging about three a day these days, so it can be tricky to keep across them. And I know I have not been doing the best job for you of keeping you up to date uh, with what's been going on because we've had lots of uh, product deep dives and interviews, etc. cetera. Uh, so I'm going to give you a bit of an update. Now, it's not everything. It's just some stuff. I want to keep the episode pretty short um, to make it listenable. However, uh, looking at doing some really interesting things with the podcast this year to give you even more information and things to listen to. So without any further ado, let me launch into my very scribbled on a hotel pad list and uh, we will start. So one of the newest changes that has taken place is small yet perfectly formed, I might say. For anyone who's used EC2 for a long time and who loves using IAM roles, you can now add an AWS IAM role to an existing Amazon EC2 instance, so one that is running. I will now pause for applause for those people who have been waiting for this for a while. It is a handy feature because in the past, if you launched an EC2 instance, you couldn't add or change the IAM role once it was created. So if you made a mistake on start or you want to make a change during the lifetime of the instance, um, you're creating a new instance, which is you know, not the end of the world, but it's inconvenient and why can't we change it? So now you can. Now, just to remind you, roles are really important. Because it lets your EC2 instances use temporary security credentials that get created, distributed, and rotated by AWS on your behalf. It's a best practice because it means you're not using any long-term keys on your instance. And it also means you don't have to manage them manually or even programmatically. It's really, really effective. So you should be using IAM roles with EC2. What you now can do is using the CLI, you can actually create a new IAM role and attach it to an existing EC2 instance that was launched without an IAM role. So you can make changes as you need to. You can alter and update. There's a whole uh, really good blog post in the security blog, so I'll link to that. But certainly a great change that I know a lot of people have been waiting for. Now, one of the services that is used pretty much by everyone is Amazon EBS, the Elastic Block Store. And this is a really amazing service that allows you to get storage, block storage on demand for your EC2 volume. So it kind of underpins a lot of what we do from a server perspective in terms of boot volumes, data volumes, etc. Now, many organizations have indicated that they have quite dynamic needs for their storage and, you know, it's hard to predict over time what they're going to do. So the EBS team has launched Elastic Volumes. Now, these are a feature for EBS. So it's not a new type of volume. It's simply a feature we call Elastic Volumes and it's available for all current generation EBS volumes attached to current generation EC2 instances. So you can now increase the volume size adjust the performance, or even change the volume type while the volume is in use. That's the big thing, whilst it's in use. Not a simple thing to do technically, as you can imagine, but from an end-user perspective, really, really simple because you can continue to use your application whilst the change takes effect. So this is really good to get you out of a jam if you're running out of space, out of performance, you've misjudged your provisioning. Instead of having to snapshot and create a new volume, you simply modify the existing one which is really, really powerful. Now, a few things about when you do this. So firstly, obviously the uh, uh, elastic volume can help you grow the volume size. 
However, you need to also grow the file system. Now, there's instructions on that in the documentation, both for Linux and Windows. Most of you listening probably know how to do that in your sleep. I simply wanted to mention that you still have to do that step, so you want to choose your file system wisely. And basically, you can expand the file system as soon as the state of your volume changes to be what's called optimizing. Now, this is really typically a few seconds after you start the operation of changing the volume configuration. Essentially, the configuration is in effect from that point, although the optimization process can go for up to 24 hours. However, you start getting access to that performance basically straight away and you can use the volume straight away. So this is a really powerful mechanism to adjust your performance profile as and when you need to. Now, at the moment, you can make things bigger. Um, you can't make things smaller at the moment. However, we always love to get feedback from customers as to whether that's a use case they'd like as well. So um, take a look at the link information and also the special uh, criteria around which instances and volumes are supported. All the current generation stuff is, but if you're using older stuff, you may need to look into that as well. Pretty exciting on the storage front. Now, I talk to a lot of customers who run uh, applications on mobile devices and Often the bane of their existence is testing across the vast array of tablets, devices, mobile phones, carriers, Wi-Fi, 3G, 4G, etc. Now, AWS Device Farm is a service that lets you have access to a huge array of different device types, iOS, Android, um, Kindle, etc., just to name a few. And it's a very popular service because you can run lots and lots of different tests uh, without having to buy the devices or have a stock of those devices and have a more modern cohort of devices to test against. And it's interesting, we get a lot of customer feedback from uh, using our services. And this is a new update to this particular service that resulted from what you may call two diametrically opposed um, customer requirements that actually make total sense. So the new capability uh, within AWS Device Farm is that you can now limit the maximum number of device minutes that your AWS Device Farm tests run. So you can basically set a timeout on each device. So if you want to protect yourself from going too long, you can now limit it to the amount of time you're happy with. Now you may say, well, what was the opposite ask? Well, the opposite request was to extend the default maximum timeout time beyond 60 minutes. You can now run much longer workloads as well on Android and iOS devices in the AWS cloud. So it becomes really powerful to later run longer tests, but also you can limit to shorter tests, which is kind of nice. So AWS device time, it's, if you're not using it and you're a mobile developer, you should. Um, it is something that is really, really handy and very, very powerful. Small features often make a big difference. So as much as I love talking about some of the bigger changes that we make on behalf of customers, there are lots of little nuances and changes and additions that make life easier. One of those is for AWS Code Commit. You can now use the AWS Code Commit console to browse the history of commits in a repository. You can see what changes were made in a repository, who and when the changes were made, what specific commits were merged into a particular branch, um, the history, and it's now done in a really nice visual mechanism that didn't exist before. So just easy to use and simpler to use. You can also see a really powerful graph of the commit history of a repository. This is the commit visualizer view, and it really makes it easy to see what went on. And let's face it, with some of the uh, commit strategies and branching strategies I've seen out there, things can get a little bit hairy. So anything you can do to make it easier is nice. So AWS Code Commit now gives you that capability. So that was a small change. Let's talk about a mighty big change. Who here uh, is across IPv6? 
Of course, for a long time, uh, we've been promised that IPv4 addresses have run out, and I'm pretty sure from memory in most regions, they are gone. Um, so the move to IPv6 has really moved up a pace. And I'm really pleased to announce that we have global support for 15 regions and multiple AWS services for IPv6. So things like the Elastic Load Balancer, AWS IoT, AWS Direct Connect, Amazon Route 53, Amazon CloudFront, AWS WAF and S3 Transfer Acceleration all have IPv6 support, as do EC2 instances inside the virtual private cloud. And what this means is that you can really deploy natively IPv6 compatibility. So if you're a customer who needs to provide that for uh, commercial reasons or regulatory reasons or simply to future-proof your infrastructure, you can now do this. Now, this is obviously a big change in the industry, and it's really exciting to help customers make that move and still provide the IPv4 support and the familiar VPC construct that you're used to, but adding VPC IPv6 capability as and when you need to. Now, it is interesting playing with IPv6 because it's different. Uh, I can't remember the addresses anymore. My memory doesn't stretch that far. And the concept of public and private is completely different and a few other interesting nuances. However, um, it is the way of the future, so we probably need to learn how to do that. So which regions are supported? Let me read them out to you. There's 15 of them. U.S. East, North Virginia, U.S. East, Ohio, U.S. West, Northern California, U.S. West, Oregon, South America, Sao Paulo, Canada Central, EU Ireland, EU Frankfurt, EU London, Asia Pacific Tokyo, Asia Pacific Singapore, Asia Pacific Seoul, Asia Pacific Sydney, Asia Pacific Mumbai, and GovCloud in the U.S. All support this. Do you guys remember when I used to read a much shorter list of regions? Well, we're really happy because more and more regions reaching more and more customers, reducing latency. It's really exciting. So IPv6, it's there. You can use it now. The next change I wanted to talk about was related to the Amazon ECS service or the EC2 container service. And this is a really powerful service that allows you to manage clusters of Docker images or containers, I should say, um, far more effectively without having to do a lot of the undifferentiated heavy lifting of maintenance and scheduling and locating, etc. So it's a very useful service and it's become far more powerful recently with a couple of new things that have been included. You now have task placement policies available to you. This means that there's a task placement policy that applies to every task that gets allocated, so every Docker container that gets applied into your cluster. And you can apply four different kinds of constraints. You can provide a cluster constraint, so things like CPU, memory, and port requirements. You can create your own custom constraints, so you can filter for location, instance type, AMI, or custom attribute constraints that you choose to set. You have placement strategies, which can either meet a spread or a bin pack placement strategy. And bin packing is the optimal location of common workloads in one resource so that you optimize the use. And finally, you can have a filter that gets applied to all that based on those rules and decides where things go. So you have immense control over where things go in your cluster, which is really, really nice. So you can choose the way you want it to be balanced, allocated, distributed to your heart's content. So a really, really powerful approach. Now, one of the other interesting things that were also announced around the same time is the reverse. So we were just talked about policies to place your Docker instances in your cluster. What happens when you want to get rid of them? So you may want to remove an instance from your cluster to do system updates or update the Docker daemon or just scale down the cluster size. We now have container instance draining. And this allows you to remove a container instance from a cluster without impacting tasks in your cluster. 
So basically, when you set your container instance to the draining state, Amazon ECS prevents new tasks from being scheduled for placement on the container instance. And replacement service tasks, because it is looking for those as well, are started on other container instances in the cluster if the resources are available. And what this means is that anything that is running gets serviced, and then we can free up that particular uh, instance to be maintained or destroyed or do whatever you want to do. Now, you can do a lot of really powerful things with this. And there's a really great blog post on the AWS Compute blog, which I'll link to in the show notes, which talks about how to automate container instance draining as well. And you can use some really cool capabilities of auto-scaling, tied in with Lambda, tied in with ECS, to do some very, very nifty stuff with very little effort to actually make this work in a really, really nice way. So pretty nifty capability. If you're an ECS user, you're going to want to look at this. So if you use Amazon with any level of seriousness, uh, obviously you'd use AWS support. Um, I love the AWS support team because they really have a strong customer focus and really know how to solve problems for customers. Now, if you have business level support or enterprise support, you also get what's called Trusted Advisor. And Trusted Advisor is a fantastic automated capability that runs within your account and runs a whole raft of checks against your account for things like performance problems, service limits, uh, cost optimization, uh, fault tolerance, etc. It gives you a really good picture of anything you need to be concerned about without having to do all the hard work yourself. The great thing about the trusted advisor team is they keep adding checks, but it doesn't cost you anymore. It doesn't cost you anything. It's just part of your support package. So there are seven new checks around service limits and Aurora database availability. So there is now an Aurora DB instance availability check, and there are six new service limits. So each AWS account comes with service service limits on resources that you can spin up or use. These can, of course, be changed in most cases. However, uh, it's important to have that visibility of those service limits. So as you're approaching them, you don't sort of run into them. So there are now service limit checks for the relational database service, which are subnet groups, subnets per subnet group, option groups, and events event subscriptions, I should say. For IAM, there are, the policy limit is now shown. And for CloudFormation, the number of stacks as well. So you have great visibility into what's going on in your environment. Now, I'm conscious I've covered quite a lot. I'm conscious of the time. And I want to make sure that I do one little thing, which I haven't done for a while, which is a black belt tip. Now, it's a small black belt tip, but it's a really important one for those of you who are using AWS Lambda. Now, AWS Lambda is our uh, serverless capability that allows you to deploy functions into the cloud and not have to worry about the undifferentiated heavy lifting of pretty much everything else. And for the right sort of workloads, it is sensational. I'm a huge fan because it just makes things easier and in many cases, more performant and less costly. Now, one of the things you do have to consider is how to optimize your environment. And one of the really simple but big tricks in terms of making your Lambda function perform really well is to instantiate any AWS clients that you use outside the scope of the handler so that you can take advantage of connection reuse. This is because once your Lambda function spins up, it remains available for a period of time. So rather than recreating the client connection to different services every single time as part of the handler, you have it outside the handler. So the first time it gets started up, it creates that connection, incurs the overhead of creating that connection, which creating connections always do. But subsequent calls do not have that overhead. Really simple coding practice to do, but delivers really good performance benefit on an ongoing basis. So that's a little but useful black belt tip. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I uh, hope the sound quality is okay. I'll listen back and see. Goodness knows how it'll work out. 
But again, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you ever want to send feedback, awspodcast at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.